I read about a a 747 passenger plane that was halfway across the Atlantic when the captain got on the loudspeaker and said, Ladies and gentlemen, we have lost one of our engines. But we can still reach London with the three we have left. Unfortunately, this will make us one hour late. An hour later, the captain made another announcement. Sorry, but we have lost another engine. But no need to worry. We can still make it on two. However, this will make us two hours late. A short while later, the passengers heard the captain's voice again. Guess what, folks? We lost our third engine. But rest assured, we can fly with only one. We will now arrive in London three hours late. At this point, one passenger became frustrated and shouted out, Are you kidding me? If we lose another engine, we'll be up here all night. (laughs) Well, no, you won't. For if you lose your last engine, if you lose your airspeed, there is this little thing, just a little thing, called the law of gravity, which essentially says what comes up must come down. In our atmosphere, the fundamental law of gravity is a constant force. It's always in effect. And unless the higher laws of aerodynamics can counteract the weight of the aircraft, the law of gravity will always act to force that heavy metal object in the sky back to the ground. What goes up must come down. This morning we are going to look at two decrees, two laws authorized by King Ahasuerus. Laws which in many respects interact with each other in a similar way the laws of aerodynamics interacts with the law 
of gravity. If you recall, Queen Esther, Queen Esther had saved her cousin Mordecai and the Jews from Haman. Haman was executed by the king. He's dead. But his handiwork, his extermination order against the Jews was still very much alive. Esther knew this, and she was deeply burdened for her people, a condemned people. And she felt compelled to stand in the gap before King Ahasuerus. So once again, Esther went before the king uninvited and pleaded that he would revoke the extermination order against them. And this morning, we are going to see what happens. So if you have your Bible, turn to Esther chapter 8. And we will pick up where we left off from last week with verse 7. So Esther chapter 8, beginning with verse 7. So King Ahasuerus said to Queen Esther and to Mordecai the Jew, Behold, I have given the house of Haman to Esther. And him they have hanged on the gallows because he stretched out his hands against the Jews. Now you write to the Jews as you see fit in the king's name and seal it with the king's signet ring. For a decree which is written in the name of the king and sealed with the king's signet ring, may not be revoked. This is going to require a little bit of explaining. As I said, Queen Esther had made her passionate plea for the lives of the Jews. And here is the response of King Ahasuerus. First, the king points out that he has already executed Haman for raising his hand against the Jews. He's he's killed the guy who wanted to exterminate them. He's shown he's in favor of the Jews. He's on board with saving their lives. What he's done, all he can do. Then the king tells Esther and Mordecai 
if they can think of something else, something better, they can prepare another decree, a second decree. Write in it whatever they want in the king's name. And then they can seal it with the king's signet ring to make it official, to make it law. This was some great news. Esther and Mordecai now have free reign. And the king also reminds them a decree, a decree sealed with the king's signet ring may not be revoked. According to the law of the Medes and Persians, a document signed by the king sealed with his signet ring may not be revoked because that would imply the king made a mistake. Even if he did. And let me show you what I'm talking about. Let's take a moment and go to Daniel chapter 6. Where King Darius, the father of King Ahasuerus, was, was reminded of this very law by some government officials who hated the prophet Daniel and wanted him out of the picture. Beginning with verse 6, we are told, Then these commissioners and satraps came by agreement to the king and spoke to him as follows. King Darius, live forever. All the commissioners of the kingdom, the prefects and the satraps, the high officials and the governors have consulted together that the king should establish a statute and enforce an injunction that anyone who makes a petition to any god or man besides you, O king, for 30 days shall be cast into the lion's den. Now, O king, establish the injunction and sign the document so that it may not be changed according to the law of the Medes and Persians, which may not be revoked. Therefore, King Darius signed the document, that is, the injunction. Now, when Daniel knew that the document was signed, he entered his house. Now, in his roof chamber, he had windows open towards Jerusalem. And he continued kneeling on his knees three times a day, praying and giving thanks before his God as he had been doing previously. 
then these men came by agreement and found Daniel making petition and supplication before his God. Then they approached and spoke before the king about the king's injunction. Did you not sign an injunction that any man who makes a petition to any God or man besides you, O king, for 30 days is to be cast into the lion's den? The king replied, the statement is true. According to the law of Medes and Persians, which may not be revoked. Then they answered and spoke before the king, Daniel, who is one of the exiles from Judah, pays no attention to you, O king, or to the injunction which you signed, but keeps making his petition three times a day. Then as soon as the king heard this statement, he was deeply depressed and set in his mind on delivering Daniel. And even until sunset, he kept exerting himself to rescue him. Then these men came by agreement to the king and said to the king, Recognize, O king, that it is a law of the Medes and Persians that no injunction or statute which the king establishes may be changed. Three times, King Darius was reminded that any law the king establishes cannot be changed. This was true for Darius, and it was just as true for Ahasuerus. So that's really good to know. As Esther and Mordecai prepare a decree in the king's name, a decree that cannot be revoked. That's worthy of praise. But wait a second. Wait a second. There's also a problem. Wasn't the extermination order against the Jews? That one prepared by Haman just a few months earlier and sent throughout the Persian Empire, also written in the king's name and sealed with the king's signet ring? Yes, it was. And therefore, it cannot be revoked. On one single day, the 13th day of the 12th month, the people in the Persian Empire will have a license to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate all the Jews. It is an empire-wide death sentence on the Jews, and it remains in effect. It cannot be rescinded. It's irrevocable. The king 
cannot revoke his own decree. Therefore, a new decree is necessary to address the problem created by the first one. So knowing that the decree created by Haman cannot be revoked, Esther and Mordecai are given permission to write a second decree in the name of the king to counteract the effects of the first one. And that leads us to verse 9. So the king's scribes were called at that time in the third month. That is, the month Sivan. On the 23rd day, and it was written according to all that Mordecai commanded to the Jews, the satraps, the governors, and the princes of the provinces which extended from India to Ethiopia, 127 provinces, to every province according to its script, and to every people according to their language, as well as to the Jews according to their script and their language. He wrote in the name of King Ahasuerus and sealed it with the king's signet ring and sent letters by couriers on horses riding on steeds sired by the royal stud. In them, the king granted the Jews who were in each and every city the right to assemble and to defend their lives, to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate the entire army of any people or providence which might attack them, including children and women, and to plunder their spoil. On one day, in all the providences of King Ahasuerus, the thirteenth day of the twelfth month, that is the month Adar. A copy of the edict to be issued as law in each and every providence was published to all the peoples so that the Jews would be ready for this day to avenge themselves on their enemies. The couriers hastened and impelled by the king's command went out riding on the royal steeds and the decree was given out at the citadel in Susa. Okay. Mordecai is the number two man in the Persian Empire. And with the assistance of the royal scribes, he takes it upon himself to create this second decree. Mordecai knows he cannot cancel the first decree. He knows that. But there is something he can do to counteract its effect to even the playing field, so to speak. He can issue a new decree 
that would allow the Jews to assemble. On the 13th day of the last month of the year to defend themselves against anyone who might come against them. Under the first decree by Haman, the Jews were essentially powerless. For since it came by a royal command, it could very well include some official action against them by the Persian army. But Mordecai's decree now empowered the Jews to gather together and take up arms to defend themselves against those who might attack them without any fear of official retaliation. In his decree, like in the decree of Haman, the Jews, in self-defense, were allowed to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate any people who might attack them, including their women and children. And I think it was written that way to mirror the first decree written by Haman, but also, more importantly, to scare off. To scare off anyone who still might try to attack them. And what's up with the horses? If you notice, this thing about the horses seems to be a big deal. Horses don't like me. I don't know why. We're told that once Mordecai's decree was completed, it would be sent out by couriers who rode horses sired by the royal stud which was a detail not mentioned in the extermination order written by Haman. Just so you know, the Persian kings, beginning with King Darius, had developed a very efficient postal system used throughout the Persian Empire. And it might best be described as an ancient version of the Pony Express that used this relay system. A courier would get on his horse and ride like the wind for a prescribed distance. Then he would hand off the message to another courier who would also ride like the wind and so on and so on. So this is how the new decree would be sent out. But why on royal horses? Horses sired by a royal stud. Why are we being told this? I think this detail was added to make it clear that the king stands behind this new decree from Mordecai. 
the king was not able to revoke the first decree according to the law. But by offering up his own royal horses to the couriers, he lets it be known where he stands. He stands with the Jews. Now we come to the last few verses in the chapter. A chapter that began with tears, but ends in rejoicing. Beginning with verse 15, we are told, Then Mordecai went out from the presence of the king in royal robes of blue and white, with a large crown of gold and a garment of fine linen and purple. And the city of Susa shouted and rejoiced. For the Jews there was light and gladness and joy and honor. In each and every providence and in each and every city, wherever the king's commandment and his decree arrived, there was gladness and joy for the Jews, a feast and a holiday. And many among the peoples of the land became Jews. For the dread of the Jews had fallen on them. The Jews had been in mourning. But with this new decree by Mordecai, the mourning had turned into gladness. And if there was any doubt in the validity of this new decree, there stands Mordecai, the Jew, next to the king in royal clothing. Isn't it ironic? At the beginning of our story, Esther and Mordecai were afraid to make their identity known as Jews. But now... It is necessary. It is wanted. The appearance of Mordecai was proof beyond any shadow of a doubt that the good news was true. In fact, it was so startling to the Gentiles, they came to the realization that the God of the Jews was working behind the scenes on behalf of His people. And they wanted to know and follow their God. When thinking about these two decrees, I am reminded of God's great love for His people. For us. In light of a seemingly hopeless situation. Like the Jews in the story of Esther, we too were condemned we too faced certain death. 
In Ezekiel chapter 18, verse 4, we are told, the soul who sins will die. The soul who sins will die. God has declared judgment against every guilty person. A judgment that demands death for sin. Ever since the fall of man, the law of sin and death has always been a constant force upon mankind because mankind inherited this sin nature from Adam. Our human condition, our fallen, carnal nature is controlled by sin. And as proof of this, the Apostle Paul says in Romans chapter 3, beginning with verse 10, as it is written, there is none righteous. Not even one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become useless. There is none who does good. There is not even one. These verses from Paul tell us that according to God's perfect standards, all of mankind left to themselves without the influence of God are fallen under the power of sin. Sin has infected and affected every part of our being. It pulls us down like gravity. And then to hammer his point home, in case someone thinks they are the rare exception to this, Paul says this in Romans chapter 3, verse 23. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. In other words, using Jesus Christ as our comparison, there can be no doubt. All 
have sinned. All have fallen short of God's perfect standard as revealed in Jesus Christ. Now, from our perspective, our point of view, we might say that some people are better than others. And I can understand that. But as someone once said, if sin were blue, if sin were blue, we'd be blue all over. Part would be dark blue. Part would be sky blue. Part would be light blue. But every part would be blue in one shade or another. No matter how you slice it, blue is still blue. And from God's perspective, sin is still sin. And we have all sinned. So all are declared guilty of sin before a holy and righteous God. And He has determined, He has determined that the penalty for sin is death. The soul who sins will die. And it's irrevocable. It's irrevocable. All have sinned, and therefore, just like all the Jews in the story of Esther, all are sentenced to death. And unless God does something to counteract that, mankind is condemned to eternal damnation and separation from God. Like gravity, like the decree of Haman, the law of sin and death remains over us unless God steps in and makes a way. For mankind, without an act of God, it's a death sentence. It's a death sentence. But then the Apostle Paul tells us this in Romans chapter 6, verse 23. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Here Paul first reminds us of the law of sin and death. He says, for the wages of sin is death. Sin will bring a paycheck of death. We know that. It's a problem. But then in contrast, he includes the solution to the problem. 
but the free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. In His great love, despite our sinful condition, God stepped in and made a way. God did not revoke the law of sin and death. He did not revoke that law. It has to stand. Instead, He counteracted it with a free gift of life through a sin offering. A once and for all sacrifice by His Son who would set us free from the death penalty held over us. In our sin, we were sentenced to death until God solved our problem and satisfied the law of sin and death by freely giving His Son Jesus as a sacrifice to bear our penalty on the cross. Jesus did for us what we could not do for ourselves. And as a result, Paul later tells us in Romans chapter 8, verse 1, I love this verse. might be shocking to you. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That word condemnation is a legal word. It's a legal word. And it refers to judgment. Specifically, adverse judgment. Coming down on someone who is found guilty. It refers to a legal finding of guilt and the penalty that comes with it. But for those in Christ Jesus, for those united with Him by faith, Paul says God's judgment, His eternal judgment, is not going to come down on you. Not now, not ever. Now, how is that possible? Because I don't know about you. But I still struggle with sin. I still stumble and fall. I wander off the path. I get pulled in this direction and that direction. Like the Apostle Paul said of himself in Romans chapter 7 
I choose to do. I choose to do. What God doesn't want me to do. I want to do right. But sometimes I can't seem to do it. In fact, sometimes I do the very things I hate. This is how Paul, God's man in the early church, described his own personal conflict. This is what he was dealing with. And yet, and yet he says, therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Yes. For those who have genuinely trusted Jesus Christ as their Savior and Lord, there is no possibility of receiving condemnation. Correction? Oh, absolutely correction. But no condemnation. No way. Because God said so. He has decreed it. And why? Because for those who have received Jesus Christ by faith, Jesus has paid the penalty for your sin in full. You were found 100% guilty. 100%. And Jesus took your penalty upon Himself. He was your substitute. He took your place. He took your condemnation. All of it. That's what He did. Did He take away all the problems? All your failures? All your struggles? Nope. Nope. But in spite of your problems and failures and struggles, there is no condemnation. And nothing will separate you and me from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus. I want to close by reading 
a few of the lyrics to a song called Amazing Love. We've sung it before. It goes like this. I'm forgiven because you were forsaken. I'm accepted. You were condemned. I'm alive and well. Your spirit is within me. Because you died and rose again. Amazing love, how can it be that you, my king, would die for me? Amazing love, I know it's true. It's my joy to honor you. In all I do, I honor you. The thing that makes this truth so amazing is that we were once hopelessly, hopelessly condemned to death. But by the love and mercy of God, those who believe are graciously saved. And in the light of that stark reality, the only reasonable thing to do, the only grateful thing to do, the only loving thing to do is to live our lives in a relationship with Him. Seeking to follow and to honor the One who saved us. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this time in your word. I just can't get past this, Lord. We were condemned, rejected. dead in our sins and trespasses. We were helpless and hopeless. And there wasn't one single thing we could do to save ourselves. Not one. Not a one. Thank you, Lord, that you that you saw fit in your love, in your mercy, 
shall make a way. I can't even fathom, Lord, what it took to give your only son just for me. Hard to imagine. I can't imagine. It's so amazing that you sent Jesus to pay a penalty he did not owe because I had a penalty I could not pay. He took my death sentence upon himself so that I might live. Thank you for who you are. Thank you for your love and your grace and your mercy and your forgiveness. Thank you for Jesus. Lord, I pray that you would cause us as a people to be so taken by him He would be our everything. I pray, Lord God, in my life and the lives of the people here, that Jesus would increase and that we would decrease. Be our everything, Lord. May you be honored and glorified. Help us to walk with you, to follow you, to abide in you. Have your way in us and through us. Thank you for who you are and what you do. In Jesus' name, amen. The passage in in Romans 6.23 is kind of stuck in my head. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. It's a contrast, isn't it? It's a contrast between death and life. Death is a default position. That's our default. And He offers life through Jesus Christ, His Son. Did you notice in that passage there's no middle ground? There's no third option? There's only two options, isn't there? death eternal damnation or eternal life it's a contrast but it's a contrast with options with choices with choices it's God's desire that none would perish 
none would perish. We're told in John 3.16, a passage you all well know, for God so loved the world, the world, that He gave His only Son, only begotten Son, that whosoever would believe in Him would not perish but have everlasting life. You know that. You've heard it a hundred times. It says something about God's purpose for us. His desire is that we would have eternal life. That means a life with Him when we leave this earth. But it also means we can have a full and meaningful life here. A life of meaning. That's His purpose. That's what He wants for us. But as I said earlier, we got a problem, don't we? It's a big problem. It's a sin problem. And our sin prevents us from experiencing God's purpose in our lives. We are sinners, all of us. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We just went through that. There's a penalty for our sin, and it's death. We are all sinners by nature and by choice, every one of us. That's a problem, isn't it? For the wages of sin is death. God has a purpose. We've got a problem. But God had a remedy. He had a solution. That solution was in a person. Jesus Christ, His Son. But God demonstrates His own love toward us in that while while we were yet sinners while we were still in our sin Christ died for us Jesus said I am the way and the truth and the life and no one comes to the Father but through me he is the only one who died for your sin he's the only one who could God has a purpose. It's eternal life. We have a problem. It's sin. God has a remedy. It's Jesus Christ. And we have a response. We have a response. Repent of our sin. Turn the other direction. Place our faith in Him. We trust that He is who He says He is. He did what He said He will do. He means what He says. Jesus died on the cross for our sins. Do you believe that? He died for you. He died for me. Do you believe that? And we surrender to Him as Lord. Lord, I give you my life. Make from it, make out of it whatever you want. I'm yours.
I am bought and paid for with a price, a very high price. If you're here this morning and you do not know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, I would love to pray with you. Maybe you're looking for a church home. We'd love to have you with us. Or maybe there's something else. However the Lord moves you, I just pray you respond to Him in obedience. It's the uh, first Sunday of the month, and um, as is our custom, uh, we um, participate in, in communion. As I think about what we are doing, preparing to do, and our truth from this morning, again, Romans 6.23, For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. In some respects, our partaking of communion represents both sides of that equation. If you think about it, Jesus said the bread represents His body. His body that would be given. A body that would die. Because of what? Because of the law of sin and death, which is not revoked. He died in our place. He was our substitute. He took our condemnation. That's what the bread, in many respects, represents. Our condemnation. He became our condemnation within the blood, the juice. In the Bible, it represents not death, but life. The blood represents life. But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Jesus took our condemnation. And for those who trust Him, they receive eternal life. That's what this communion reminds us of. We were once condemned. He took it. He took it for us. And now we get to enjoy eternal life with Him. It's amazing, isn't it? Jesus was with His disciples. I love this story so much. Jesus was with His disciples hours away from the cross. Just hours. Hours away from the cross. I don't know about you, but I would have been thinking about moi. Me. That's who I would have been thinking about. But who was he thinking about? You. Just hours away from he from what he knew would be absolute agony and torture. He knew that was coming hours away. And he thought about you. That's amazing. Absolute amazing. 
Jesus told his disciples, this, this bread represents my body. Our condemnation. His body that is given for us as a substitute. And he said, when you eat of this bread, remember me. Remember me. Remember what I did for you. Remember me. He told his disciples, eat. May we do likewise. And then he took the cup, a cup that represented his blood. And blood in the Bible represents life. Life. He said this, this juice represents a new covenant. Not an old covenant, a new covenant. Whereby we may be made right with God. Right with God. No longer condemned. Unbelievable. Right with God, no longer condemned by His sacrifice. By faith. By faith. We are made right with God. That's amazing. We are worthy of death. And because of faith in Him, we get to experience eternal life. He told His disciples, when you drink of this, remember me. He told them, drink. May we do likewise. Let me close in prayer. I want to play for, uh, pray for our offering. We have offering baskets in the back. And then also pray for our fellowship. Hope you can stay for that. Uh, I smell some food. So anyway, let's pray. Father, I thank you, Lord God, for this time together. Uh, Heavenly Father, I, I just pray that, that you would use this time and that we would draw closer to you, that we would love you, and that we would love one another. Father, I pray that whatever happens here would go beyond these doors. I pray, Lord God, you would just use us and you'd work through us. Thank you, Lord God, for the opportunity to give just a small portion of what you've given us through our tithes and offerings. Father, bless the gift, bless the giver. Help us, Father, as a church to use your money wisely. Give us wisdom and discernment and understanding, Lord God. And the Father, for our fellowship afterwards, bless the food to our bodies. Bless those who brought food and prepared food. And I pray, Lord God, our time would be sweet. Our fellowship would just be awesome. That we would come to just love and know and grow and love uh, each other. May you be honored and glorified. I thank you for who you are and what you do. In Jesus' name, amen.